Well, church, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be at this morning. And I'll let you know in advance, we are covering a massive portion of Scripture. We're going to be looking at Acts 10 through 1118 is sort of our assignment. I'm primarily going to be just in Acts chapter 10, 1 to 48, but you will be greatly helped if a copy of God's Word is open. If you need a copy, you can just put your hand up, and Craig has some in the back. He will gladly put a Bible in your hand. He loves doing that. He loves doing that. Okay, we got one up here when you're done with that, Craig. We got one up front. Um, Acts chapter 10, 11 through 18. Now, normally, I like to read the text in its entirety before we preach, but because of just the the length of this text, I'm going to sort of read it and tell the story as we go, all right? Um, As I said earlier, this is a massive text. It's massive not just in its length, but also in its significance and its importance. Not just in the book of Acts, but also it's really, this passage is really a turning point in the history of the world. In fact, I would go as far as to say that you and me, we find ourselves in this room as a result of what happened in Acts chapter 10. This is a significant point in all of redemptive history. And it's a passage that we ought to know well. These are sort of, you could say, our roots. Now, a number of years ago, I was, found myself in a different country. Maybe you've found yourself in a place similar to that, unfamiliar, and um, kind of figuring things out as you go. Um, I was with some friends. I'm not going to say which country it was in. I was with some friends, and we're sitting in a cafe outdoors. And as we sat there, um, I noticed, and after a couple of days of being in this country, the dogs were just, they were different there. They didn't have things like leashes and collars and tags. They just sort of roamed the streets, and they were wild. And uh, we sat there in the cafe, and it was very common, as we sat there being served by our waitress, um, to see a dog come up and sort of, you know, walk around the tables looking, begging for anything that might fall off, or just hoping for some kind generosity of one of the restaurant's patrons. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting, you know, whatever, this is just the way it works, okay, I get it. Then within a few minutes, shortly after noticing the dogs, there was a little boy who stepped foot onto the property, and he didn't get anywhere near any of the tables, and he was immediately driven out by the workers of this particular cafe. Found myself sort of frozen, thinking, That is really sad that the dogs, now there's all sorts of cultural dynamics going on here. I don't want to downplay them, but I also don't have time to get into them. But that the dogs at this cafe, wild dogs, no owner, no name, were treated better than this little boy. Perhaps you've been in a context where you yourself have seen something like that take place, some form of discrimination, some indication that there is clearly a hierarchy, that there are clearly sort of second-class citizens. There are some people that can't even be treated like a dog. Perhaps you found yourself in a situation where you feel like you've been treated like a second-class citizen. 
discriminated against. Or maybe, just maybe, if you look into your heart, just reel with yourself for a minute, you can think of a type of person that you view as a second-class citizen. The passage that we're looking at today, as I said, was, is massively instrumental. It's instrumental, it's monumental, it's significant in telling us the story of how the gospel threat spread throughout the world. But it's also instrumental in showing us how God feels about things like prejudice, ethnocentrism, racial pride or bigotry, maybe that we've seen, experienced, or maybe that we've expressed. The big aim as we go through this passage, what I believe this passage shows us this morning, is that the gospel shows us that Jesus welcomes all and is Lord of all. The gospel reveals to us in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus welcomes everyone and is Lord of everyone. Two points, first point. See this really verses one through 36. The welcome of Jesus is for all. The welcome of Jesus is for all. There are 7.8 roughly changing every second billion people in the world. Those 7.8 billion people are divided up among 195 countries. Of those 195 countries, you could say that there are some people use the term people groups. There are some 17,000 people group. A people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. Of those 17,000 different people groups, there are some 6,825 unreached people groups. An unreached people group, what is that? I'm glad you asked. Getting this information, I think, from Joshua Project. An unreached people group is defined as one where less than 2% of the population is Christian. So that's some 3.3 billion Unreached people, not quite, but nearly half the world, unreached. See in our passage today that the welcome of Jesus is for every one of those people around the world, in our neighborhood. The welcome of Jesus does not discriminate on the basis of ethnicity, social standing, gender, culture, Nation, rather the life-giving offer of Christ is for everyone, every person. If that's a key characteristic, a key feature, not only of the very heart of God, but also his global plan, then as his people, as his church, it ought to be a key feature of our heart, of my heart of your heart, and it ought to be a key feature of our plan, of our strategy. A strategy, I would go as far to say, that does not include all people 
is not a strategy that's in step with God. As we consider this welcome, a couple of subtitles. First thing that we'll notice in our text this morning is that God will find those who seek him. God will find those who seek him out. Look at your text in chapter 10. I'm gonna read verses one through eight. It says this, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Story in chapter 10 begins with Cornelius, who is, we are told, an elite centurion. Not all officers in the Roman army were equal. As Alexander the Great, his tactics were different when he conquered foreign lands. One of the things that he did that was unique was rather than just moving into a land and killing everybody, he gave the army the opportunity, the choice. Do you want to serve with me or die? So many would choose to serve with him and his army. Cornelius, we're told, however, is a member of the Italian cohort, meaning he is a true Italian. He's been an officer from the beginning. He's part of the inner circle, a heart of the Roman military establishment, occupied as a result a high station of life that would have been allowed him to be responsible for overseeing some hundred men in the army. He's a man of high social standing. In verse two, we discover four things specifically that are unique about this man. First is that he's God-fearing. There's a debate over what exactly is meant by this. But it's clear that he's been exposed to God in some way, shape, or form. He's responded favorably to the the exposure that he's had. And as a result, he has some awareness, some understanding that God exists. We're also told that he's devout. This desire for the things of God is something that that we learn he leads his family in this particular direction as well. We're told that he gives alms. He's a generous individual who gave regularly, used his influence and his wealth To bless, also, he prayed to God continually. He was a man who sought out God in prayer. In the quiet of his heart, he recognized not only that there was someone outside of him, but that someone had something he needed. So he recognized his need for that person, his dependence on him, through prayer. We're told as it goes on, it seems like Luke wants us to get the idea that Cornelius was a good man. These four things. He feared God. He was devout, gave alms, prayed. The impression Luke wants to give us is that this man was a good man. He wasn't saved. He wasn't justified. He was a seeking man. He had some understanding of God and pursued him. 
God tells us in his word, it's a promise he gives us, that he will find those who seek him. Jeremiah 29, 12 to 4 says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. This is a promise of God. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently, they find me. Those who seek after God will be found. Cornelius is a good man, yet he's a good man who needed to hear the good news, the good news of Jesus. Next thing we see is that God will raise up and he will send out people to extend his welcome to those who seek him. God will find those who seek him and he will find those who seek him by raising up people and sending them out to extend the welcome of Jesus to those who pursue him. Story goes on, Peter's vision. We've got two visions. Cornelius has the first one. Now Peter, likewise, has a vision. Starts off in verse nine. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise. Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. As we read chapter 10 of Acts, we see that it's really the conversion of two men. See, the conversion of Cornelius, but there's also a conversion that happens to Peter. It's not just the conversion of Cornelius going from unsaved to saved, but also the conversion of Peter from a heart that was cold towards a certain type of person to one who was welcoming and loving those who were different from him. Peter's heart is converted. Starting at the end of chapter nine, we can see that God is preparing Peter for this conversion. He stays, we're told, in the home of Simon, who is a tanner. A tanner would have been a profession, a person who would have been unclean as a Jew. You would not associate with a tanner. You wouldn't go into their home. There would be sort of restrictions that would guide how your relationship would be distant because they were part of an unclean work. And here Peter finds himself staying in the home of a man who was, had a profession that was unclean. God is preparing him. He's preparing Peter for what he is about to do with Peter. And verses 17 to 29, the story goes on. Peter comes out of the vision, figuring out what it, what it meant. He discovers that there are men that were sent by Cornelius that are at his gate waiting for him. He follows the Spirit's prompting. He goes and he accompanies them. They tell him that they're sent by Cornelius. In verse 22, it says their description of Cornelius, he was an upright, God-fearing man. They were sent specifically by him to Peter's house to bring Peter with them back to Cornelius. 
Peter obliges, goes along with them. In verse 25, when Peter enters the home, Cornelius met him. He falls down at his feet, begins to worship him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man just like you. That's no small thing for Peter to say to a Gentile. I am a man like you. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew, me, to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation like you. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So as a result, when I was sent for you, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? Folks, what Peter is doing here is no small thing. This doesn't happen in this day. It does not happen to step into the home as a Jew, to step into the home of a Gentile, unlawful. You don't associate with those people. They're unclean. John Stott, as he be, tries to paint a picture for what this divide, cultural divide, looks like, listen to what he says. He says, it's, it's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf that yawned in those days between Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. They became filled with racial pride and hatred. They despised the Gentiles as dogs and they developed traditions and laws that would keep them apart from each other. No Jew would have eaten in the house of a Gentile. No Jew would have had a Gentile come into his house. No Jew would sit around a table with these type of people and be associated with them, let alone eat food with them. Imagine Peter in this position for the first time ever, completely out of place. This is likely the closest he has ever been to these people. New territory. Yet we see he is precisely where God wants him to be. He is obedient to God's direction. God is orchestrating this whole thing. We see it all throughout the story. God's direction is what's, hap what's making it happen. The vision of the angel that comes to Cornelius in verse three. Peter, who also receives a vision in verse 11. Then the voice speaks in verse 13. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. The voice again in verse 15. God divinely intervened. He broke down into history, shattering walls that were dividing people. In verse 16, we're told three, this is not the first time Peter needed a threefold reminder of something. This is significant. Three times it repeats itself. If Peter was hearing it the first time, he is culturally thinking there is no way. But over and over and over again, God's voice speaks. 
do not call any person common or unclean. Any person, no qualifier. This is God's direction, but we also see that it required man's participation. I think it's important for us to recognize he did not have to do it this way. He didn't have, God did not have to do it this way. But we see as we study through the book of Acts that over and over and over again, God is choosing to break into people's lives through the faithfulness of other people, through the obedience of other followers of Jesus over and over again. Like we saw last week, Peter and Lida and Joppa, or Philip in the, to the Ethiopian on the road. Well, as we see as we study through the book of Acts, Saul over and over again, this wild conversion story, taking the gospel then into utterly uncharted territory. The gospel is not just coming to us to save us and to transform us. It does that, but then it also sends us to influence and impact the people that God has put in our way or sent us to go and get into their way. The gospel interrupts our life so that we can then interrupt other people's lives. This is how God divinely works throughout creation, throughout you and me. He will raise up and he will send out people that will be responsible for extending the welcome of Jesus to everybody, to everybody. He's tearing down walls that have kept these people apart. He's doing it intentionally because he doesn't just need to convert Cornelius, he also needs to convert Peter. Then we go, as the story goes on, we see that God makes it abundantly clear. He shows no partiality. All are welcome. Peter's vision really, you could say, has sort of two points. The first is that the food laws have been fulfilled and ended in Jesus. Learn that in Mark chapter seven, verse 19. Secondly, it also says that the people who kept you separate from one another, the nations, the Gentiles, they are no longer to be considered unclean or common. This is Peter's own interpretation of the vision. After Cornelius tells Peter why he sent for them, Peter clearly is connecting the dots and states in verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. This is a characteristic, this is a feature of God, no partiality. The CSB version says God doesn't show favoritism. The King James version says God is no respecter of persons. Eugene Peterson in the message says God plays no favorites. It's easy for us to say, especially today in today's age, it's very easy for us to say it's a very popular idea. Discrimination is a terrible thing. But in our own self-righteousness, Oftentimes, we are convinced that it does not exist in us. Yet I think many of us would be surprised to learn just how easily prejudice can be undetected in our life. If we examine our lives, many of us, I don't think there's anybody in this room, anybody, who is immune from this potential. It, it, it ultimately is rooted in the sin of pride. Love and obsession with yourself and those who look like you and those who talk like you and those who sound like you and those who come from the same part of the world that you come from. 
that in a love for ourselves, we surround ourselves with people who look and act just like us. Every single one of us is tempted towards that. Live in similar homes, people who talk with similar accents, who vote along similar party lines, those who get upset about certain things like you do, those who love and are passionate about other things just like you. This is a temptation, our prejudices, they don't just surface when we're around other people like us, they surface when we, as we tend to segregate ourselves from one another. Those who look similar, dress similar, have a similar career, education. It's easy for us to turn our nose up at some people. But not God. He doesn't act like that. God shows no partiality. God plays no favorites. Verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, that is, who respects him, who recognizes him as Lord, and who does what is right, that is, who turns to Jesus, anyone, it says in verse 35, is acceptable to him, is received by him, is welcomed by him. God doesn't receive them based on their race or their gender how much money they have in the bank, what their social standing is, what professional trade they're in, how much education they have. Rather, God shows no partiality. A number of years ago, before COVID, I would go occasionally to Oakdale uh, Medical Classification Center out here in Corvo. And we'd have chapel for the men, I think on Saturday nights it was, and have an opportunity to get up and just preach. Many of them were, have church on Saturday nights. I think they had on Sunday mornings, lots of opportunities. And it was really a wonderful experience, tremendous encouragement to me. But one of the things in preparation for going there to, to, to preach that I was told is that I have to wear khakis. The person who invited me was very specific, you must wear khakis. The only thing that matters is that you show up. I mean, you should have a Bible in your hand, but you should also be wearing khakis. Why? Because all of the prisoners were wearing blue jeans. And it was so critical for understandable reasons to make a distinction, a visible distinction. So I could walk in, and it was, it was a helpful bit of information for me because I could clearly see, without having to ask questions or just be curious, sort of where people stood. Is this a guard? Is this an inmate? It was helpful. But can you imagine? I mean, we all should be able to imagine. God shows no partiality. Not on race, not on income, not on gender, not on what you've done in the past. In heaven, there's no khakis and blue jeans. God doesn't play favorites. The Bible's super clear. We are all sinners in desperate need of grace. Every single one of us. And as a sinner who's just covered in filth, the only reason why I'm in good standing with God is because of Jesus. How ridiculous is it for me to look at somebody else and feel like, well, I'm not so bad. The gospel gives no room for that because God shows no partiality. 
No partiality. So that's just the first point. I promise the second point will go a lot faster, okay? The welcome of Jesus is for everyone. Why? As the chapter goes on, because Jesus is Lord of all. We see this abundantly clear in verses 36 to 48. Gonna cover a lot of ground. There's not much time to do it, but uh, it's critical. It's critical. We move from really sort of the effects in the first half of the chapter of the gospel to the reality of the gospel. And it's so critical for us to see because as wonderful, at least to many of our modern ears, as the first part was, God shows no partiality, his welcome is for everyone, it's only possible because of the second part of the chapter. See, there's no shortage of efforts today throughout history, in fact, of attempting to sort of tease out the benefits of the gospel while neglecting or dismissing the reality and the truth of the gospel. The effects or the results of the gospel of Jesus are not possible apart from the reign and the rule of Jesus. And it's so critical for us to remember that. As Peter opens his mouth and speaks, he gives us fairly clearly gives us clearly the reason why the offer or the welcome of Jesus is for all. And the reason is summed up quite nicely with just five words in verse 36. Because he is Lord of all. It's a short sermon that that Peter preaches upon his arrival at Cornelius' house. It's a short sermon. He repeats many of the, the aspects of the sermon that was preached in Acts 2. This is, in fact, sort of the Gentile version of the Pentecost And as we look at his message, basically three things come to the surface. First of all, it's totally gospel-centered. You see the message of the gospel, the certainty of the gospel, and the application of the gospel. The message of the gospel, look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. What is the message of the gospel, the, the gospel sort of in a nutshell? What's the very heart of the Christian faith? It's right there. Jesus is Lord of all, and peace is only possible for people from every nation through Jesus Christ. This is the message of the gospel, no matter where you might be from. Jesus is Lord of all, and he offers peace to all. No matter what you might believe, Jesus is Lord of all, and he offers peace to all. No matter what you might have done, Jesus is Lord of all, and he offers peace to all. This is the message of the gospel. This is why, for us, the welcome of Jesus extends to everyone, because he is Lord of everyone. He goes on and makes it very clear. He tells us the certainty of the gospel. Look at verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He's he's laying down certain facts. Fact number one, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is Jesus is a specific person. He is the Jesus of Nazareth. Be like saying, Didi from Lone Tree. There's probably only, I would guess, I've been to Lone Tree a few times, but I've never met another Didi in Lone Tree. I'm assuming there, there might be. You haven't either? Okay, she's been there longer than I have. People would know instantly, oh, Dee Dee from Lone Tree. This is who we're talking about. Not a mystical figure or maybe a make-up, made-believe individual, a real-life person. 
He goes on, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Verse 41, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Fact number two is that the gospel is centered around not only a real, known, verifiable person, but it's also concerning real work that actually happened. His work, a work that was public, that people could see. Everything that he did when Jesus lived, did his ministry, he didn't do it in a cave in secret. He did it out in public view so everybody could be aware of what Jesus was doing. His death, his crucifixion was a public spectacle, was a part of how he was murdered. It was what made it such a horrific thing because it was accompanied with public shame. And his resurrection, we learn in the Bible that after he rose from the dead, he appeared to over 500 individuals. You can go to them and ask them. And what Peter is saying is this gospel is the gospel of Jesus and it's true and you know it. And third, we learn the application of the gospel. Keep reading verse 42. First part of the application is that this message is to be proclaimed. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To judge the living and the dead. Can you think of anyone who might fall outside of that set of people? Maybe there's somebody sitting next to you that you think maybe right now is somewhere in between. But the point is, no, that's everybody. The living and the dead. Jesus is a judge over everyone. He's been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, all people. Therefore, Peter reminds us, since all people will be judged by King Jesus, we must preach to all people the message of King Jesus. You can be forgiven for your sins. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I think it's so fascinating how Peter sort of flips the script on these two verses. In the first verse, in verse 42, he talks about the emphasis is placed on the fact that Jesus is a judge. And then when he refers to the Old Testament and the prophets, he focuses on the forgiveness. Oftentimes, when we take our Bibles, we flip those two things around. That judgment is only in the New Testament, Old Testament, and that the New Testament is all about forgiveness of sins and love. Peter says, I mean, those, certainly those elements are there, but here he references Jesus' kingship. He's a judge of the living and the dead. So we are to proclaim it to all people. And then secondly, we are to extend his welcome. Proclaim his word and extend his welcome to all people. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on the dogs. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They were, these people were receiving the precise benefits that the disciples had received. Exact same, no partiality. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? God shows no partiality. 
And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is an amazing picture. People from every nation receiving the Holy Spirit. Some degree, this is a fulfillment of what God promised he was going to do in Acts chapter one. God himself, the very people the Jews did not want to enter into their house because they were unclean. God doesn't just move into their house. He moves into their hearts and says, this is my home. That's what God does for us. And not just us, but he offers that same welcome to everybody. What God has made clean, do not call common. Our job, this is a key feature of Jesus, and he's, he's drilling it into Peter. He's using him to, to help advance his global purposes. He's converting his heart to see that the, the barriers that it divided you before, they don't longer exist. And it's critical that as we see this happen, I mean, he is changing paradigms of these people. We'll see as you read into the chapter 11 that the people got when they catch news of this. Peter, tell us. The Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, and he retells the story. He's blowing people's minds. But he also wants to direct our steps that if God is the type of God who extends himself, shares himself, gives himself to all types of people, then we must too be a people who welcome all types of people in here. If God shows no partiality, Doug Fern better show no partiality. If God shows no partiality, Parkview East better show no partiality. We are all sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. And God doesn't play favorites. It doesn't matter where you come from, what language you speak. There's no room in the body of Christ for things like racial pride and prejudice. Turning your nose up at somebody who looks and sounds different than you because you think you're better than them. God loves you. He does. And he loves them too. He extends himself to you just like he does to them. Romans 15, says, 7 says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See, Romans 15, 17 is a phenomenal verse because it says, when we as God's people follow suit, when we welcome one another as God through Christ has welcomed us, he's glorified. We do it not for our own good, not to be relevant by sort of cultural standards. We do it because Jesus Christ died on a cross to, to tear down the walls that divide us and to make us one new people. And when we, when we come together, tells us in Ephesians that we put on display the manifold wisdom of God. We raise him up. We don't raise ourselves up. We raise him up, and God is glorified as a result. So Parkview East, I'm going to leave out all my parts of application. There's going to be a few. We don't have time for it. I'll just give you one. Sometime this week, finish reading this story, 11 through 18. Read the rest of the story and see how God's people respond to news of what God did through Peter in the life of Cornelius. It's a 
beautiful picture of how we ought to respond to news of what God is doing as he's making disciples through Bethany and Wesley, through Jeremy and Emily, through Jay, through you, as God's global purposes expand across this universe. We should give praise and thanks for what he's doing and ask him that maybe he can use me to do it too, to extend his welcome to somebody else. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the fact that you are a God who is a God of all. And Lord, we just ask for forgiveness in areas in our life where we feel like, we all do in some way, shape, or form, that we're better than somebody, that we're more deserving than somebody, that we're more special than somebody, and we just might be your favorite. Lord, I pray that you would help us uncover and discover pride in our lives confess it to you, Lord, and we thank you that you're a God who forgives us our sins, that even those who have maybe got, maybe their history has been that of bigotry. Lord, we thank you. The blood of Jesus covers even that sin, and that we can be cleansed, and that when you look at us, Lord, you don't see our filth, but you see the righteousness of Jesus himself. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that extends your welcome to all people. Lord, that we become just wonderful neighbors who are gracious and loving to those who don't know you, who hold firm to the truth. Lord, and I pray as a result that you would be glorified through this church. I ask these things in your name. Amen.